0: Thank you so much for joining us on one of our online services. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. Uh, it is so great to have you here with us today. So we're in a four, we're in a multi-week series called the Blessed Life, and we're in week four, where we're exploring the foundation, the bedrock of Jesus' greatest sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And these bedrocks are called the Beatitudes. Now, last week, I just want to say thank you to Pastor Derek. He did such an incredible job about talking through Matthew 5, 5, where Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. It's actually the complete opposite. Remember, the Beatitudes are not mentalities or self-help. They're the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the disciple. So meekness is something that the Holy Spirit does inside of us when we realize that we don't have a leg to stand on, that we come mourning over our sin and realizing that no one here is better than anyone else. So we come with humility. Now each beatitude flows in to the others, pouring into the next. And so it starts off with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then that flows into or pours into as blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Which then leads into blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The disciples' meekness is the direct result of the work of God that he already began to do in and through them through the previous two Beatitudes. Now, it's important again to remember That the Beatitudes are not about personal enlightenment, something that's done through therapy, or even a natural personality trait. They are something the Holy Spirit does in you. Think of it this way. I know people who walk around in shame over their sins. They're embarrassed. Maybe it's because of a drug addiction. Uh, Or maybe alcohol or pornography or they've been divorced or their marriage is falling apart and they carry this weight of shame. You can feel shame without the Holy Spirit. You can feel conviction without the Holy Spirit. But instead of coming empty handed to Jesus and trusting in his grace and mercy for forgiveness, they look to something else. Maybe they look inward. They don't look to the king and his kingdom They look maybe to another religion or even deeper into their own sense of worthlessness. Now, likewise, I know individuals who out of that shame, they mourn over their sin. They mourn over the spouse that they lost because of their addiction or an affair or the missed opportunities of a job or the state of the world. You can mourn over sin or over brokenness and still not need the Holy Spirit. In fact, I want you to think about this for a moment. Prisons. Counseling rooms, AA meetings, and rehab centers are usually filled with individuals who feel broken in sadness over their their sin, over the things that they've done wrong. But are they seeking comfort from the right place? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm grateful for, for the areas where people who are dealing with their stuff. But the point of the Sermon on the Mount is to remind us that it's not just about what you feel. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to take a moment to, to really celebrate something. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about this incredible ministry we have here at Zion called Celebrate Recovery, where celebrate recovery is for people who mourn over their sin and brokenness, but and they are choosing to go to the ultimate source and comfort and change, which is Jesus. It's an awesome ministry where for those who are dealing with this, in meekness, they come to the source. Well, here's the praise God. There were 35 people this last Thursday or two Thursdays ago who came to celebrate recovery. People who are ultimately going to Jesus for the source of their recovery, to the Holy Spirit for hope and healing. That's incredible. And I really believe that number is only going to keep on growing. Because remember, recovery is not just for alcohol, drug addiction, pornography. We're all in recovery for something. So I just want to give a big shout out to that because it's pretty awesome to see what's happening there. Um, now, just as people can feel sorry about their sins, can mourn over their sins, there are even people who are naturally meek. And I don't mean weak. Remember, meekness is not weakness. People who, quite frankly, um, their gentle nature. I know some people that this is just their personality. We think of people like Gandhi, Right. There are individuals who are not Christians who are meek in nature. They put others first. They're gentle. They're kind. But what is Jesus talking about here? Well, here's the thing every beatitude has two parts a declaration that God gives, and then a promise. Every beatitude has a declaration and a promise. Now, here's why this is important. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says this, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Unlike people, God always fulfills his promises. And each beatitude has a declaration. So for instance, when it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's the declaration. They are blessed. The blessed are the poor in spirit. The promise from God is this. When you come poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is yours when that poverty in spirit is the work of the Holy Spirit. When someone asks Jason, how can I be sure if I'm saved? Well, I go to the promises of God. This is why it's so important to remember. It's not just the declarations. It's the promises that matter. How do I know I'm saved? Because God has promised that if my faith and trust is in Jesus Christ as as my Lord and Savior, I will be saved. It's a promise. I don't have to live in fear of whether or not it's going to happen. God declared it. I believe it. Now, here's why this matters. For each of the Beatitudes, you don't necessarily need God for the first part. You don't need God to realize that you're poor in spirit or, or to say you're poor in spirit. You don't need God to deal with mourning. You don't necessarily need God to be meek, but you cannot accomplish the second without Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You can't. And that's why the Beatitudes are not self-help. You need the work of the Holy Spirit. So Beatitude number one. Here's the declaration. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Here's the promise. God's kingdom will be theirs. Beatitude number two. The declaration. Blessed are those who mourn. The promise. For they will be comforted. The Beatitude. The last one we did last week. The declaration. Blessed are the meek. The promise. They will inherit the earth. Now. We've already spent several weeks talking about the first two. I just want to recap something. How can God promise the meek the earth? Well, the key word is in the word inheritance. Inheritance is a word that is passed usually from a family member or a friend given to either their children or somebody they trust. It's theirs to own. It's theirs to give to them. It belongs to them. That's why they can leave it as an inheritance. Remember, God created the heavens and the earth. King David put it this way in Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This world ultimately belongs to Jesus. And so when Jesus says, listen, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He's literally saying, I'm giving you this world. He's leaving it as an inheritance for those who belong to him. Now, that's a future hope for us, but it's also a present reality. Now, another way of looking at it like this, the first three Beatitudes are about God doing something in you. That's really why they first started. That's also why they, they kind of have a negative connotation to them. It's about God working in and through you through the spirit. Um, one of my spiritual mentors, a man I deeply respect and trust, his name is Mike Bradley. He said it this way. God wants to do something in you so he can do something through you. In order for God to accomplish his will and work in your life, he has to do that work of the first three Beatitudes. Spiritual poverty, spiritual brokenness, mourning over your sin. And yes, even the meekness that comes from a life in the Holy Spirit. But why does he do this? Well, God is shifting something inside of you. It's a paradigm shift. He's giving you new, a new way of seeing things, of hearing things, experiencing himself, ourselves, and the world. I actually think of it like this. The first three are about God wanting to change what you crave. What is it that you hunger and thirst for? Now, I want you to imagine this for a moment, okay? Um, Each of these Beatitudes are like a step. They're a step in a direction heading up to the stage. So here I am on the stage at Zion and we have steps on either side of me. Let's say this is where God dwells. God dwells up here on the stage and the earth is down below. Well, the world basically says that if... To feel sorry, to mourn over sin, to be meek, that's not raising yourself up. That's actually going low, but that's not how God works. God actually wants us to shift our reality because here's the thing. While each of these things feel negative, in God's economy, they're positive. Each one of these steps leads you closer to the heart of God. So step number one, if I was walking up the stage, step number one is, I'm spiritually poor. I depend on Jesus to provide. I I don't have any riches. Jesus has them all. And then I take the next step, edging closer to the heart of Jesus. I ache and mourn over sin and brokenness, mine as well as the world's. I look to the Holy Spirit to comfort me in my mourning. And then step three, I'm no better than anyone else else. And I have the meekness, the humility, the courage through the help of the Holy Spirit to be truly vulnerable with other people and with God. And therefore, I joyfully surrender myself to God's will and to love and care for others the way he wants me to. It's about putting God and others before myself. I need God just as much as the person next to me. In fact, I might need him even more so. This creates humility in a servant's heart. The entire time that God is working in me and I'm taking these steps, he's changing me and you from the inside to get us to the beautiful place and being in relationship with him. That's the declaration. Now, remember the promises are the kingdom of heaven, God's comfort, and the earth. See, all of this is actually God's beginning to cultivate a craving a hunger and thirst inside of each of us for what we desire because God's world is different. Now check this out. This is point number three. These things happen because of the Spirit's revelation inside of you. What the Spirit's revelation, with the Spirit's revelation comes spiritual elevation. Check, I mean, think about that for a second. When the spirit reveals these things to you, when he reveals your sin, when he reveals your your mourning and your brokenness, when he reveals that the humility that comes with realizing you're no better than anyone else, that actually elevates you to be present with God. The more you depend on Jesus, the more you desire Jesus. He elevates what you hunger for, which leads us to the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Jesus each member each one pours into the next. We have to understand what does it mean to hunger and thirst? All of us know what it's like to be hungry, all of us know what it's like to be thirsty. But I doubt any of us know what it's like to truly hunger and thirst. True hunger is coming from the place of not having food around or available. See here's the thing, when I'm hungry, I just eat. When I'm thirsty, I go get a drink. For Jews in the time of Jesus, including Greco-Roman citizens, they understood hunger and thirst all too well because guess what? There was no Culver's or shoutangu that they could just go get food if they were hungry. There wasn't just a drinking fountain or a vending machine to go get water or soda water, whatever else it might be. Most people lived in extreme poverty. They understood hunger and thirst. When a drought hit, it may mean they had to search for clean water. When a famine hit and the crops failed to yield, they may not eat for a season. If the fish didn't bite, they went without food, sometimes for a meal, sometimes for days, which leads us to our next point. To hunger and thirst is the language of desperation to survive. It's not to be hungry and thirsty because those can be filled immediately. True hunger and thirst comes from a desperation to, to survive because we need to eat and drink to live. Well, for God's people, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. Which comes out of those first three Beatitudes. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 84 two. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. That yearning and fainting is that uh, when you don't have enough food or water or shelter, literally you pass out. That's how hungry you are. You're so desperate. You pass out, you faint for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for you, the living God. Psalm 63.1 says it this way. God, you're my God. I can't get enough of you. I've worked up such a hunger and thirst for God traveling across dry and weary deserts, which leads us to the next point. The first three Beatitudes are God's way of getting your attention, your affection, of creating a desire, a hunger and thirst for more. It's an awakening of the soul, a craving for righteousness for God. Now, usually often requires something Negative to happen in our lives, particularly for many in the world. And here's what I mean by this. God will use negative, desperate situations to get your attention. Like through sickness or an accident, a loss of friendship or a divorce. Those are negative things. God will sometimes let you get to the very bottom so that you can only reach up in desperation. But there's also a positive There's a positive way of looking at this, and that's when the Holy Spirit is the one through the word and through community gets your attention and you want that. So here's the thing. Would you rather get a hunger and thirst for God out of being with God through the work of the Holy Spirit or because you've allowed yourself to fall so far that the only hope you have is Jesus? God will use both. Sometimes we need to be broken in order to be healed. That's hard, isn't it? There's actually a story about this. Uh, In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the parable of what's called the prodigal or rebellious son. Now, it starts off this way. There's a father who has two sons and he's a very wealthy man. And one son is faithful, the other one not so much. The youngest of the two sons, the youngest brother goes to his father and he says this, Father, Give me my shares of the estate. Basically, here's what he's saying. Dad, I know you're not dead yet, but I'd really like my inheritance. He literally is telling his dad, I wish you were dead so I could have my money now. The father gives him his inheritance. The rebellious son leaves the safety and security of his father's land and home and goes to a faraway place with his inheritance. There, he foolishly spends his money on sex, alcohol, gambling, partying, all the things that so many in the world have done. He takes that gift and he blows it. Unfortunately, a famine hits the land and the rebellious son now has no money, no house, no food. He's desperate. He ends up hiring himself out to a local merchant and the man basically says, here's the deal. I'll pay you to go feed my pigs. Now for a Jew, this is a big deal because here's the thing. Pigs are considered unclean. They were defiled creatures. So for him to go feed pigs as a Jew was saying, you really hit rock bottom. He's so hungry, he's even willing to eat from the trough, the slop from the pigs. No one will give him any food. In desperation, he thinks to himself, even the hired hands, even my father's hired workers are taken care of better than I am. They eat better than I do, even if it's just off the scraps of my father's table. So he sets off to go home embarrassed, ashamed, broken, and quite frankly, humbled. But it's not humility that comes with realizing, hey, I never had it to begin with. It's now humiliation. He then sets back to go to find his father. And here's what he's hoping He wants to come to his father and beg that his father will take him back. He says these words, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now check this out. I love this. The father probably has thought that his son died in the famine. But he's waiting on the porch and in the distance he sees his son walking. And a father knows his son. A father knows his children. And he sees his son walking down the road and the father filled with excitement gathers up his robe and he goes chasing to meet his son. Listen to what the Bible says. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him, embraced him. And the son, broken and humiliated, says to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can finish, the father interrupts him and says, listen quick, bring the best robe and put it on my son. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. We're going to have a party. Let's feast and celebrate for the son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And then it talks about how the older brother gets so upset. But I don't want to focus on that right now. Unlike the rebellious son, we don't have to go through all of that to come home. The Holy Spirit might already be working on your heart saying, Come home. The father's arms are open to you. Come back. For some of you, God's been trying to get your attention. The Holy Spirit's been trying to get your attention for years. And maybe just after over the last three weeks, you're finally starting to get it. You're starting to listen. You want more. You're realizing that you were hungering and thirsting for the natural things. The things that ultimately will never satisfy. You were hungering after food, after money, sex, position, recognition, whatever else it might be and you're starting to figure out that they're empty. They don't quite fill you the way they thought you thought they would. Your hunger and thirst is beginning to move from the natural to the supernatural. You have an appetite for the holy, the miraculous, the truly filling, the holy spirit. But what is the righteousness? Remember, it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is the righteousness that Jesus is actually talking about? When we think of the word righteous, we usually associate it with being moral or virtuous or ethical. Here's the thing. Any, at, any beatitude that does not cause you to look to or seek to become more dependent and like Jesus is missing the point. That's why you have the declaration and the promise. The goal is just not to get people to feel bad about their sin. Their goal is to take that sin to Jesus. The goal is not for people just to mourn over the impact of sin. The goal is to be comforted by the Holy Spirit. The goal is not just to be a meek and gentle person. The goal is to reflect and be meek like Jesus. And that happens only through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to finish the analogy, okay? So here I am now, I'm on this stage, I'm where God is. God has met me on this place because I've walked up those steps. The the Spirit has revealed and elevated me now and Jesus comes running to me because that's his heart. But it doesn't just stop there. That thirst for righteousness, and this is where we're going to figure out what righteousness means, is leading us to the next three Beatitudes, It's leading me to go down the steps back to the world around me so I can show the Father's heart, so you can show the Father's heart. So what are the four kinds of righteousness? What is the righteousness that it means? What are we hungering and seeking after? Well, it's ultimately not about being moral or ethical or virtuous. You don't have to be a Christian to be those things. You just be a good guy. No, first is personal righteousness, and that personal righteousness is to be more like Jesus. 1 John 2.6, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. We hunger and thirst to be more like the Jesus we love and serve. The second kind of righteousness is spiritual righteousness, We want to be in right relationship with God. And that's something that only God can do. Uh, In spiritual theological terms, we call this justification. To be declared right, justified in God's eyes. To be declared holy. And that's something that's only done through Jesus. I can't accomplish that. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We want to hunger and thirst to have a deeper relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with God. We want to be in connection with him. The third, and this is a big one, is social righteousness. We want to see Jesus move in the world. Listen to what Isaiah 117 is. And in order to do this, we have to know God's heart. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Why do we do these things? Because that's God's heart. God's heart is for the forgotten, the oppressed, and the broken. We want to see this move in the world. Now we're doing this thing here at Zion where we're going to start moving out and how can we be the church in Clear Lake, Iowa? How can we be God's hands and feet? Seek justice in Mason City, Ventura, Garner, Forest City, wherever our people are. Northern Iowa, that's who God has called us to have his heart for. We want to see social righteousness because it's not just about making the world a good place. It's about making the world a godly place. We want to see Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of light, invade Satan's dominion, the kingdom of darkness. Now, this goes back to a challenge I gave a couple weeks ago. What is God breaking your heart for in the world? And let me make it even more personal. What is God breaking your heart for in our city, in your neighborhood? Maybe it's a neighbor. Who's been shut in because of the coronavirus out of fear. Or it's somebody who you know doesn't know Jesus and desperately needs him. Maybe it's for a single mother or a widow or an orphan. Maybe it's a child who's being so neglected by at their home life. That you just have such a heart for them. You want to love and care for them. What is God breaking your heart for? That is social righteousness. But there's a future righteousness that God also is working in us. It's a coming righteousness to see the world finally made right when Jesus returns. This is, we don't know when this is going to happen. I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Now, Revelation is a book about when everything is put right, when evil and Satan and and sin, all of this is destroyed, and God eventually is going to bring heaven and earth together again. Check this out. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why do they have to be new? Because the old ones are filled with brokenness. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Now at first you're like, why is there no sea? The sea was a place of chaos. It's where monsters lived and shipwrecks happened. So it's not that there's literally no sea. It's saying chaos is destroyed. It's only newness. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The imagery is of a bride and groom. And I remember on my wedding day when my wife stood down the aisle and as she walked, I looked and went, that's my wife. My bride is coming and she looked at me and I looked at her. If you've ever had that moment or been in a wedding, that's the idea is that the old and new, there's only new. Jesus is the groom and the bride, his church is coming to meet him and there's a celebration. They're going to be united. That's what God is moving towards is that we're no longer separated. There's no sin. There's no pain. There's no tears. There's no sickness. It's all been destroyed. Verse 5, listen to this. He who is seated on the throne. Now remember, we talked about why they sat. It was a place of authority. Jesus declares, I am making everything new. It's not new yet. We're waiting for that future That future when everything is going to be new where the old is gone. Then he says to John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, remember, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Now here's the next part. This should break our hearts. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all the liars, they will be consigned, given over to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, which is hell which is the second death. Now, again, we're going to look at this and some people will go, well, yeah, the vile murderers, those people who do really horrible sexual things, magic arts, idolatry, and liars. But I want to pay attention to the first two things in here. Who are the cowardly? We usually think of cowardly as someone afraid to step into battle or to confront fear. But I'm going to make a guess, and it doesn't say this, but I think this is the heart behind it. I think the cowardly are those who are too afraid to humble themselves before Jesus. I think that's who the cowardly are. The cowardly is the person who is so arrogant, so prideful, that out of their own fear, because that's what the root of arrogance is, it's fear. They cannot humble themselves to God. They cannot humble themselves before the King Jesus and the unbelieving are those who just refuse to admit it. They refuse to believe. It takes courage to admit that you need a savior. For those people who don't want Jesus to be king, well, they don't get to be a part of the kingdom. That's what hell is. Hell is a separation from the kingdom. Do you see it? I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Righteousness is not just morality. It's hungering to be more like Jesus. It's thirsting to be more like Jesus. It's hungering and thirsting to know and and love God more and more. It's hungering and thirsting to see the world transformed and for the light of the world to be seen and demonstrated. It's hungering and thirsting for what one day will come when Jesus returns. Do you see it yet? To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for the source of righteousness, which is Jesus. Jesus. We have to hunger for him. You don't crave God like you crave a cheeseburger or a cold beer on a hot summer's day. That's not enough. You have to hunger and thirst to be like Jesus, to be with Jesus, and to live for Jesus because you can't live without Jesus. Let me say that again, you hunger and thirst to be like Jesus, be with Jesus, and to live for Jesus because you can't live without Jesus. Daniel Doriani says it this way, if we seek first the kingdom, when we also seek the king, we long for his rule and presence. As King David said, my soul thirsts for God. Jesus said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is also to long for God and his word. We need to become people of the book, which is why I want us to bring our Bibles. It's why we should be taking notes and studying. This, uh, this hunger and thirst is personal, yes, but it's more than personal. We long for God to change us, but we also long for God to change our culture, our society, so that his reign will be more visible. Disciples of Jesus are not individualists. We do not achieve holiness by withdrawing from the world. Rather, we step into the brokenness of the world just like Jesus did. We long to be a part of the world to see Jesus' influence and transformation in the world. Have you ever wondered why so many Christians and churches lead such dull, boring, and unsupernatural lives? The answer is simple. Because somewhere along the way, they lost their hunger and thirst for God. That's why it happens. They lost sight of the first three Beatitudes and just started coasting. I don't know about you, but I don't want to coast anymore. I, want, I don't want to see Zion coast. I want to see Zion hungering and thirsting for God. I want to see the Holy Spirit move in my life and in this church and in your life and that we start craving Jesus, more of Jesus. Have you ever taken the challenge to get healthy? I have several times. In fact, I'm doing them right now. Starting the, the habit, the pattern of working out, eating healthy can be tough. For years, I hated Brussels sprouts and broccoli, hated them. And then I started getting healthy and guess what? Now all of a sudden, I crave Brussels sprouts when they're made right. When they're not, they're still disgusting. But when they're made right, they're amazing. The way we change, the way we increase our crave for Jesus is by taking our spiritual health seriously. And how do we do that? Well, the first three set it up. First, we confess. We confess our sins to Jesus regularly, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal those areas of our lives where he wants to make us more like him. Second, We're in community. We mourn together. We're in fellowship with others who are looking to Jesus for comfort. That's what it means to be comforted. That's why we need church. And then lastly is connection. And I mean worship. We need to humble ourselves to worship Jesus instead of ourselves or our problems. Did you know worship is the ultimate form of meekness? Think about it. When we worship, we are declaring That I'm not enough. Jesus is what I worship. That food does not deserve my worship. It requires humility to worship. To recognize that God alone is worthy of our praise. So here's the challenge I want to give you. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. That's the confession piece. Second, who are the like-minded followers of Jesus in your life? Who are seeking Jesus with you? That's the mourning piece. And then lastly, worship. Worship, worship, worship. When we come and sing songs, we are coming before the King of kings and Lord of lords. We are declaring he is worthy of our worship. Jesus' declaration is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But his promise is this, if you do it, you will be filled. Here's the big idea. If you truly in hunger and thirst for righteousness, the source of righteousness, which is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, promises to satisfy and here's the thing, because God is infinite, the satisfaction is infinite. We can, we, we will never have enough of God. We'll never get so full of God that there's not enough. He is infinite and that what he provides, it's always growing when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let me pray for us. Father, may we come hungry for more of you, hungry for your word, hungry for prayer, hungry for community and communion, to worship you, to sing and delight in you, to be the people you've called us to be. God, stir that in us. Lord, for whoever is watching this right now, listening, God, I pray that you would stir inside of them, that they would turn to you. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you, Jesus, that when we hunger and thirst for you, you satisfy. In Jesus' name, amen.